Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. All right, we're going to be in First uh, Timothy 4 this morning. Um, Our practice at True Vine used to be that when, uh, when we were done singing and the sermon was beginning, we would dismiss the kids down for children's church. And so for years, I've gotten away with telling il- illustrations and stories about my kids without them ever knowing. But since we've been uh, all sitting together, they're like, you talk about us a lot and you give us no money for this. So I've had to start getting permission to share stories. Now, thankfully, they both have headphones on right now, so they don't even know. But uh, with permission, I share this story. And I feel strange asking permission for my children, but I'm going to, under these circumstances. Um, With permission, I share this story about my son, Aiden. He's nine years old. He heard that. You gave me permission, bud. Okay. So, uh, you know, as a parent... Part of my responsibility uh, is to teach my children how to be productive and responsible, and we introduce those ideas through chores. We have kids doing chores. Mostly the chores at this point are go get me a drink um, and uh, go get me a snack and things like that, but uh, he helps take out the trash and uh, cleans up and does other stuff like that. Kendra often will leave Josiah with them, and she'll go out, you know, you know, to bet on the horses or something like that. And so the kids do chores, but they don't always do it joyfully. Sometimes it's like they drag their feet, they groan and sigh and things like that, and they don't like doing the chores until they want something. When they want something, it's like, can you, literally, can you give me a list of chores that I can do to earn extra money. And so for months, we've been trying to get the kids to do chores, and now all of a sudden, Aiden wants, he has something that he wants. He wants to buy a drone so he can fly it, I guess. And because of that, he has said, I will do as many chores. He's always like, can I do a chore? Got any chores I can do? Is there anything I can do to do some chores? That's like $5, right? And he always suggesting the value of the chore. Uh, All of a sudden, it's very easy to get him to do, participate in these disciplines of doing chores. Why is it easier now than it was two weeks ago? Because he's focused on something. When he has focus, the discipline comes more easily. It comes more naturally. When we don't have focus, discipline is hard. Discipline is difficult. I mean, I remember as a kid growing up, uh, playing sports, being in school, even into college, working uh, my way through there, the jobs that I've had over the years, when, when you don't know why you're doing what you're doing, it just, it's a grind. You know, you, you drag yourself, you do it because you know you have to do it, but you don't necessarily enjoy it. It feels like it sucks the energy out of you. But when you know why you're doing something, it, you can even get joy out of hard work. You can get joy out of difficult things. You can get joy out of discipline when you simply have focus. So I don't think most people have a discipline issue. I don't think most people have a laziness issue. I think most people have a focus issue. Most people have a vision issue. They don't know why they would do the hard things that they're asked to do. And if we can't provide vision and we can't provide focus, then asking people to live disciplined lives really turns into simply try harder, work harder, suck it up, grind it out, walk it off, rub some dirt on it, those types of things. Does that make sense? So what we want to do is help people understand what we are focusing on and what God's vision is for our lives because, as I said, most people do not have a discipline problem. They have a focus problem. Now, When a person has focus and is still undisciplined, then they're just lazy. So there is such a thing as laziness. When a person knows why they would do something and still doesn't want to do it, then they might just be lazy. But oftentimes people don't know why they would do something. We want to provide focus for them. As a Christian, we have 
one primary focus in our lives, and it's to become more like Jesus. Or uh, I call that Christ-likeness, but the Bible has a word for godliness. The word godly, just it's to, to uh, grow in character, to grow in our affections so that we're you know, more like God. Not that we ever become God, we don't, but we can become more Christ-like. We can become more godly. And so uh, we have this focus. This is our focus. Now, this is a focus that I think is missing for a lot of people. And that's why people don't understand why it is important to participate in spiritual disciplines like prayer or the study of Scripture or serving or giving. We, we don't, well, why do we do these things? I don't know why we do these things. It must be to earn our salvation, I guess. And that's the misconception that people come to is we do these things, we do these spiritual religious acts so that we can earn our salvation. But actually we do these things because these things make us more like Christ. Why do we pray? Because Jesus was prayerful. Because Jesus is praying for us right now. It says in Romans 8, he is interceding for us right now. So when we pray, we become more like Jesus. Why do we serve other people? Why do we give? Because Jesus came as a servant. Because Jesus gave generously. Why do we study God's word? Because God's word tells us what Jesus is like and it gives us something to aim at as we grow in godliness and Christ-likeness. So we do these things. Why do we fast? Why do we fellowship with other people? Why do we uh, wait for the filling of the Holy Spirit? Why do we do these things? We do these things because they make us more like Jesus. Not because they save us, not because they, uh, uh, we have to grind and, and force our way through these things because they make us more like Jesus. The result uh, of focusing on building Christ-likeness is, let me say that again, the result of focusing on becoming more like Christ will be the overflow of spiritual disciplines in our lives. Now, this passage that I want to read for, from 1 Timothy 4 is Actually, in my Bible, it's called a good minister's discipline. That's the heading that is uh, man-made, not inspired. But it says a good minister's discipline. And if, you're, if you've been following through 1 Timothy, Paul wrote this to a young pastor, okay? Timothy was pastoring. Um, Timothy was probably in his mid-20s. I remember when I was in my mid-20s as a pastor thinking, ah, Timothy, First Timothy, Second Timothy, these books are so relevant to me. And I still see myself as a young pastor, but I'm like, wait, I'm 38, Timothy was probably 25, like he's just a little intern now, you know? So, uh, sorry for those of you that are like 25. Uh, but uh, I used to relate to Timothy, now I'm starting to relate more to Paul, you know? Like, and I wanna read this passage from First Timothy 4 written originally to a pastor, but this passage is about discipline. And who is discipline for? Discipline is for disciples, not just leaders, not just pastors, not just elders, not just deacons, not just church staff, not just governing board members. Discipline is for disciples. Anyone that lives a dis disciplined life for Jesus is by definition, a disciple of Jesus. So this is 1 Timothy 4, starting in verse 6. I'm going to read through verse 16. In pointing out these things to the brethren, okay, what are these things that are being pointed out? This is hearkening back to all the teaching Pastor John Eric did about people falling away, apostatizing the apostate. Okay, in pointing out these warnings to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old, men, well, old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is, of, is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is for this that we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, 
but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through, through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation, both for yourself and for those that hear you. Now, uh, this passage, as I said, is for every Christian. It is not just for Christians in leadership. It's for every Christian who lives a disciplined life or aspires to live a disciplined, disciplined life in Jesus. So it's for disciples. And uh, the NIV Zondervan Study Bible dis- uh, kind of explains it uh, this way, and this quote should be on the screen for you if you're watching online. The disciplined pursuit of godliness is why Paul and Timothy labor and strive, placing full personal trust and hope in the living God confers life purpose, focus, and drive. So this Uh, little comment from the study Bible is making the connection between focus and purpose with a disciplined life. That as we focus on growing in godliness, we live this disciplined life. And we're actually going to look at four disciplines that Paul calls Timothy to in a moment. But first, we want to deal with not a discipline, but a distraction. So I often think in kind of this two-fold way, there are disciplines and there are distractions. Uh, you ever been distracted? Any of you ever been distracted? Like now? Uh, right. Distractions are frustrating. I remember uh, a couple weeks ago, we were on vacation. We were watching church from home. Man, it was totally different when you have kids all crawling all over you and your wife's crawling all over you and it's like you just want to watch the service and there's distractions going on all around. Last night, uh, one of our neighbors had a birthday party and they decided strobe lights and loud music at midnight was festive and so that was a distraction. It was challenging to sleep with those distractions. Uh, distractions keep us from fulfilling like the purpose of the moment, right? Moment, moments, many moments have purpose. When you're at work, the purpose is to work, right? And so you can be distracted by things that take you away from work. If you get up in the morning or before bed at night, you open up your Bible to study and pray, and some, it can be distractions that take away from the purpose of that moment, right? Well, Paul warns Timothy not to be distracted, and there's this one primary distraction that he warns him about in verse 7. Paul says this to Timothy, have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. So I just want to make it clear, Paul said that, not me. Okay? Everyone understands that, right? Okay. I'm just going to focus on this part. Have nothing to do with worldly fables. These worldly fables were a distraction for those in the church in Ephesus. These worldly fables were taking their time energy, focus away from growing in godliness. And Paul is telling Timothy to avoid this distraction. So what is a worldly fable? Because, you know, I think of fables like the tortoise and the hare, you know, like that's a fable. Uh, uh, Even like, I don't know, those little stories you learn as a kid that are supposed to teach you a lesson, right? That's a fable. That's what we think of as a fable. Well, Uh, A worldly fable in the language of the New Testament is a common or public tale that is fictional. I actually want to show you, uh, this is what I see when I'm studying. So in this passage, uh, this will be up on the screen if you're watching online. In verse 7, have nothing to do with worldly fables. That word fable in Greek is muthos. It's the word we get myth from. And it means a story or a narrative. A worldly fable is a narrative. And because it's worldly, it's not just a narrative, it is a false narrative. And right now, and this is not a new thing, but I think it's exacerbated, right now there are worldly fables or false narratives that are inundating the world in the church. So this, these narratives, so a narrative 
is like an arc of a story, okay? So if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, it has an arc. There's a beginning, there are main characters, there are main themes, there are main principles, but then there's also a resolution to it, right? So there are narratives in our culture that are trying to educate us, inform us, and shape us. Those narratives are, at this point, heavily political and heavily social, but all false. They, they have some truth in them. All of them have some truth, just enough truth to convince people to take them seriously, but they all have falsehood. They're all what the Bible would call worldly fables. The Republican narrative is a false narrative. The Democrat narrative is a false narrative. Any political narrative is a false narrative. Capitalism is a false narrative. Marxism and socialism are false narratives. There is a biblical narrative that if we just study the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, we discover the biblical narrative starts with a good creator. In Genesis, we find this creator who's good, who likes beauty, who decides to create humanity as a means of demonstrating love and illustrating community. This good creator creates man and woman, and what do man and woman do? They rebel and they fall. So the biblical narrative starts with a good creator, but it includes the fall of humanity. This is when Adam and Eve eat the fruit and they sin and they rebel. This is in Genesis chapter three. That's an important start of the biblical narrative. Now what is the, what is the narrative we're hearing now? There is no creator, right? Now there might be some flexibility and some wiggle room about how creation took place, but we're being told even in many places there is no creator. So that's already a, a deviation from the biblical narrative that there is a creator. We're being told that human beings are inherently good and they are turned bad by religion, which is the opposite of the teaching of the Bible. Now, the Bible doesn't teach that religion makes you good. The Bible, of course, teaches that faith in Jesus Christ transforms you. But the way it's being taught by what we would call secular humanists is that people are good, religion makes them bad, rather than what the Bible teaches, which is people are fallen and Jesus Christ transforms fallen people. That's what the Bible teaches. And so everything that's true about the biblical narrative is being attacked in some way, shape, or form. I recently, just this week, I heard a talk show host say this, you can't believe in God and believe that people are sinful. And I'm like, but that's like the whole thing. You know, like you only have to, get, you only have to read for five minutes at the beginning of the Bible to understand the fall of humanity. And you only have to, I don't know, I only have to watch the news for 30 seconds before I start to question how wonderful and beneficent humanity is. You know, I mean, how many gruesome murders have to take place in Philadelphia? How many bodies have to be found in Rubbermaid bins and suitcases and trunks, which have all happened recently, before we realize maybe human beings aren't good Maybe we need help from the outside. Does that make sense? Like maybe we did fall and we need a redeemer and a savior. The biblical narrative starts with a good God, uh, a fallen humanity. It provides, there's a savior from sin. Okay, this is another idea that's attacked that in, in false narratives that we don't need a savior, that we can save ourselves. The biblical narrative includes, in in, in many ways culminates with a multicultural family of God that God starts off with. He identifies the Jewish people and he focuses on them, but through redeeming the people of Israel, he then reaches the nations of the world. All the ethnic groups of the world are represented in the kingdom of God. There is no other institution or entity on earth currently or in the future that's as diverse as the church of Jesus. There's no political party that's as diverse as the church, right? I mean, there isn't. There's no sports fan club that's as diverse as the church. There's no school district. There's no police force. There's no 
club that's as diverse as the church of Jesus. That's true today, and it's only going to be more true as the gospel hits more nations. There's no institution or family with a more diverse history than the church of Jesus. And so part of the narrative of Scripture is that all the nations, all the ethnicities of the world will have representation in the family of Jesus as a multicultural uh, family for God. The biblical narrative teaches that there's a coming king who's going to restore all things in Jesus. That Jesus is ultimately going to return, that it's going to be personal, visible, you're going to see it with your eyes. It's not some uh, uh, symbolic like Jesus comes to my heart. No, Jesus is going to come crack the sky and your, people are going to see him. And when people see him, they're all going to fall on their knees and they're just going to, it's going to bubble up out of them, Jesus is Lord. Even if they've never said it before, they're going to realize, oh, I've been hearing about this. I've been mocking it. I've been disbelieving in it. Now, there will be some who are celebrating it because they've been looking forward to it. But that's, the, that's not the entire biblical narrative, what I just laid out, but it's, it's critical, crucial parts of the biblical narrative. But every single one of those pieces is under assault by the false narratives that we deal with in the world right now. That it, it questions the creator. It questions that mankind has fallen. It questions that the church should, uh, should be an agent of racial reconciliation, taking the gospel to all nations. It questions uh, that Jesus is going to return. It questions that there can only really be total transformation in Jesus. Uh, while, while we should work toward reform in our systems, that is only ultimately going to be achieved when Jesus comes and rules on the earth. So that's the biblical narrative. And Paul is telling Timothy, Avoid all the other false narratives, all the worldly fables, all the false beliefs. They are distractions to you. Now, Paul then tells Timothy to discipline himself, and there are four particular areas that Paul tells Timothy to be disciplined in, and these start in verse 12, okay? In verse 12, Paul says this, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. So Paul is essentially saying, discipline yourself to lead by example. Paul was, uh, Timothy was young, like I said, mid-20s. It would have been a little bit out of the ordinary for him to serve as an elder because he wasn't eld or old. He wasn't an eld person, so it would have been a little strange for him to be an elder, but he was the one that Paul appointed because remember, Timothy's job in Ephesus was actually to clear out all the false teachers and false elders that were already in place because they were screwing it up. So he had to come in and lead and people were going to look down on him because like, you're this little, you know, like young, young man, why am I supposed to follow you? Now Timothy could have puffed up his chest and said, because Paul put me in charge. But Paul actually says, no, I want you to lead by example. Don't let them look down on you because you're young but rather set an example in these areas, in your speech, your behavior, your love, your faith, and your purity. Paul tells Timothy, set an example in your speech. The way that you speak and the way that you speak to other people need to be exemplary. Now those of you that are young Christians or just young people, or even if you're the new person at work or the new family on the block, don't let people look down on you because you're young or new, but set an example in your speech. The way that you greet people, the way that you talk, the way that you conduct yourself, that's your behavior. Set an example in these things. You don't need to say that, well, you know, I, I was born in January, so I'm actually like six months older than you think I am. Set, set the example by your behavior. Set an example in love. Be the most loving person. Set an example in your faith. Believe what you believe and believe it seriously without wiggling and bending over and blowing in the wind. Set an example in your purity. This has to do with sexual purity and sexual morality. Set an example in these areas. 
If you can do those things, people will begin to give you, uh, lend you their credibility. They'll put their faith and trust in your leadership. So even when you, if you are the young person or the new person, you can set an example in these ways. Uh, your language, your behavior, your faith, your love, and your purity. I have this saying, this little saying that helps me when uh, I feel like I'm in situations like this. If you can't model perfection, model humility. Now it's kind of a joke because who can model perfection? No one, right? So if you can't model perfection, then model humility. And since no one can model perfection, everyone should model humility. And modeling humility is a way to earn trust. It's a way, especially if you are a person who is in leadership, whether it's in your community or at your job or in a church or in your family, you want to earn people's respect through modeling humility and uh, setting an example. And Paul lays out these uh, five ways that Timothy can set an example and earn the trust of those who he is leading. Now, uh, there's this discipline, lead by example. The second discipline is in verse 13, has to do with the teaching of Scripture. Verse 13 says, until I come, so Paul's planning on coming to Ephesus at some point, but until he does, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, (coughs) and to teaching. So give attention to the three things, the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, which is kind of like encourage a challenging encouragement, and then also to the teaching of Scripture. So they used to, and we still do this to some degree today, read Scripture publicly uh, a lot. And why did they do that? Well, they did it because, number one, a Bible was not easily, easily accessible. You know how hard it was to get a copy of the Scriptures? I mean, they don't, the, the printing press wasn't invented until like the 1500s. And so this is 1,500 years before they were cranking out books with bindings and covers and pages. It was just scrolls. And those scrolls are so expensive that the entire city or the entire, if you were Jewish, the entire synagogue would all pitch in to buy one. One scroll that they all shared and they would keep it in the synagogue in a, in a, in a special place and they would roll it out on Sunday. So if you wanted to get up in the morning and study the Bible, you couldn't. The only thing you could do was meditate on what you heard last Sabbath or what you've memorized which is why they would do something called oral tradition, which is they would learn to memorize scripture or they would set it to music so you could sing it and remember it more easily. Uh, in some, I, I love that the Bible is so accessible to us today, but in some ways it's spoiled us. We don't memorize it because it's like, well, I'll just pull it up on my phone. I don't even know where that verse is, but I'll just Google it. And, and believe me, I do all of that stuff. But... If we lived 1,500 years ago, we wouldn't be able to do that. Just do my little Wawa product placement here. America runs on Wawa. Um, So they would read scripture publicly because that was probably the only time that week you were hearing any scripture. They would read it publicly. You would memorize it because when you went home, it was six more days before you got a chance to engage more of it. Now, this is, this is crazy. Imagine this. If you had to wait for your rabbi or pastor or spiritual leader to teach you the entire uh, content of God's word, it would take decades. Decades. <laughs> I struggle to come up with a fresh sermon every week. If, if, if none of you had access to the Bible, I'd be like, wait till we get to Revelation. You guys, like, imagine if I was the only person that had read that in the church. Like, oh, guys, it's going to be crazy, you know. Because that's kind of how it it functioned back then. So Paul's saying, hey, be committed to the public reading of Scripture. You need to get Scripture out into the people. This is one of the things that set the Protestant Reformation apart and made it so powerful is the Protestant Reformation took place when... Gutenberg was inventing the printing press. And so all of a sudden you have books are more accessible and I believe that the first book that was printed was a Bible. So he's printing the Bible 
Of course, at this point, most people can't even read. So you have to now teach people to read. He's printing the Bible. The Roman Catholic Church at the time was not really putting scripture into the hands of the people. And sometimes that still, still takes place when a, when a mass is done in Latin and no one understands what's going on, but you stand up. I've been to enough Catholic churches. You stand up when other people stand up. You kneel when they kneel. Amina Dominus Mysterium Tremendum. You know, like you, you just sound like you're, you know, ordering from a menu. Drown that last syllable out, right? I, 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 I'm not picking, I'm just uh, sharing my experience, just like people share their experience coming to our church with me. Uh, when the Bible was printed and put in people's hands so that they could read, and they're like, wait a second, this is really different than what I'm hearing when I go to church on Sunday. This is saying that we're justified by faith alone, not by works of the law, not by sacraments, and so that set off this like explosion in the church in Europe, which led to the Protestant Reformation, where you put the Bible into people's hands. And so I think Paul's heart in this passage, of course, Paul's speaking like a, a millennium and a half before the Protestant Reformation. Paul's saying, put the Bible in people's hands. Read it publicly. Exhort people with it. Teach it regularly and accurately. Now, uh, we want to make scripture accessible to people. Uh, we do that actually by distributing scripture, but also by teaching it in a way that's understandable. Now, before you go and say, well, I'm going to go start my, you know, my teaching ministry on my block, you, before you teach, you know what you got to do? Study. You got to study first. Don't read a verse at 9 a.m. and be teaching it by 10. You got to study. There was this... Uh, Oh, shoot. It's this guy in the Bible. Before he, t he had a really powerful teaching ministry, but before he did that, he spent 30 years studying. What was his name? Jesus. <laughs> Even Jesus went through some sort of formal training. Now, this does not mean that you have to go to a Bible college to get a degree. It just means you better spend some time studying. Even if that's through a local church or through a Bible study that you're part of or you're taking a class online or a, a pastor that you like to listen to on YouTube or read their books, whatever. You don't need to go get a degree, okay? Those are too expensive nowadays. But you do need to study before you teach. Even Jesus did that. Paul, after he came to Christ, Paul, the expert in the law, spent 14 years studying before he really went and started preaching on a regular basis. So if Paul and Jesus needed a period of study, well, I don't know who we think we are that we wouldn't, right? So before you teach, study. Um, and you do that incrementally. You learn a little bit and then you teach it. And then you learn a little bit more and then you teach that. And you, you know, but you should never stop studying. One of my favorite pastors uh, said this, uh, when he's preparing, and when he's reading the Bible, he preaches every week, you know, he, he reads the Bible every week and he says, I no longer read the Bible to teach, I read the Bible to learn. He's, he, he's never just reading like, oh, oh yeah, that's a good one, I can't wait to say that. Oh baby, they need to hear that. That's not how he reads it. He reads it for his own personal growth and benefit. And then when he teaches, it's simply the overflow of that. So we want to be able to teach scripture. Uh, and then also the public declaration of God's word when we read it or declare it publicly actually has an impact on the spiritual atmosphere in the place where we are doing that. Here's what I mean by that. If there's a verse that is in your heart or in your head and it's powerful and it's like really, man, it's really resonating with you, it's providing a lot of clarity and encouragement and strength. And if you keep that in your head, it really impacts you. Do you know what might happen if you were to read that publicly? It would impact everyone around you maybe because they can't read your mind. You know who else it would impact? The spiritual realm. Angels and demons who also cannot read your mind. 
But when you start to declare the praises of God out loud, out of your mouth, do you know that angelic beings are attracted to that and demonic beings shudder at it? But they can't tell what's going on in your heart. They're not all knowing. They can't read your mind. You gotta stay, say this stuff out loud. So when we read scripture on a Sunday morning or when you read scripture in your house, before I leave my house on a vacation, like and I leave, I just go through my house and out loud I read Psalm 91. And I just pray that no harm would come near my tent. I live in more than a tent, I have a house, but you know, that, that God would protect us from you know, uh, uh, fire and flood and vandalism and theft. And I just read Psalm 91, I walk through the house, I actually make Kendra and the kids, I say go get in the car, because this is too awkward. I don't want you around for me doing this. And then I go do the weird thing that I do. But I, I read it out loud because I want, I want me, the angels, the demons, the bugs, the mice, whoever else is living in there, you know, I want them all hearing God's word. And so when we declare God's word publicly, it does have an impact on the atmosphere that we are in, the spiritual atmosphere that we are in. Okay, so Paul is telling Timothy to discipline himself by leading by example, to discipline himself to teach scripture. In verse 14, he tells Timothy to discipline himself to minister in his gifting. Verse 14 says, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. All right, this is something that I addressed right at the beginning of our series on Ephesus, which is that Timothy apparently had this moment in his life where the presbytery, that's just a big word for all the other elders in the church, gathered around him, laid hands on him. Apparently somebody in that group prophesied and uh, they uh, recognized, I'll just say it this way, recognized a gift that God had given Timothy, a spiritual gift. And Paul is telling Timothy, hey, don't neglect that gift. So let's just say, for example, the gift was teaching. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, we don't know, but let's just for sake of illustration say the gift was teaching. Paul's saying, hey, don't neglect that. God made you a teacher. Don't get caught up in other stuff. God made you a leader. God made you an evangelist. Don't get caught up in this other stuff. That's the gift God gave you. You better operate in that. Don't neglect it. In fact, fan it into flame maximize it, don't ignore it. So Paul wants Timothy to minister in his gifting. A spiritual gift, as is mentioned in uh, verse 14, a spiritual gift is a supernatural empowerment given by the Holy Spirit to Christians in order to strengthen the church and expand the kingdom of God. God gifts Christians with supernatural empowerments. Okay, not the ability to fly, not x-ray vision, nothing that Superman had, nothing that is in the Avengers, right? But God gives Christians the ability to do things like help, teach, administrate, share the gospel, prophesy, uh, help or serve would be another way to say help. I mean, there's all these lists in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4 of spiritual gifts. And when God gives these gifts, they are supernatural. A, a person who is supernaturally gifted in evangelism sees fruit. A person who's supernaturally gifted in things like hospitality has this supernatural ability to love strangers and to make them feel comfortable. So these spiritual gifts, Paul's saying, don't neglect this, minister in it. The way that we discover our spiritual gifts is by serving in community. You know, if you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, the first thing you should do is read 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, just to get a sense of what those gifts are. Then try, serve in a few areas. Help out in a few areas and find out what really energizes you. What, what comes with joy and where do you see fruit? Where do you see like an impact being made? As you do that, you will probably have a situation somewhat like Timothy, where in Timothy's life, the older, mature, spiritual people came around him and said, this is the gift God's given you. If you serve in community long enough, I bet someone is gonna come alongside you and say, hey, you're really good at this. God's gifted you in this. 
There's fruit, there's results, there's spiritual impact that's coming through this. When you discover those gifts, you wanna maximize those. You don't limit yourself, but you just wanna focus on those. Here's the final discipline that Paul calls Timothy to. It's in verse 16. Paul tells Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Pay close attention to yourself is not Paul telling Timothy to be narcissistic, okay? Uh, which could easily, it could easily turn into that, like be self-absorbed, uh, be self-oriented. That's not what he's saying. He's like, hey, hey, watch yourself. Watch your personal life. Make sure that your personal life is not a contradiction to your public life. Have integrity that you're the same person behind closed doors as you are when you stand up to lead the congregation. And for those of us that are disciples of Jesus, make sure that the way we conduct ourselves at home with our family wouldn't be a shock to our brothers and sisters in Jesus. Does that make sense? That make sure, okay, I'm gonna step step on some toes. Make sure that the way you file your taxes wouldn't be a shock to your Bible study leader. Make sure that the way that you live in sexual purity is in alignment with what you say you believe about the Bible. Watch yourself. Watch your private life. Watch your personal life so that you are not living in a way that is duplicitous, putting on one face publicly and another face privately. Every time that these things get discovered, it just rocks people. He also says, pay attention to your teaching. Make sure that your doctrine and that your beliefs are biblical and rooted in scripture. Don't drift away into false teaching because it is a drift. When people fall into false teaching, it's not something that happens overnight. It's always a drift. One little thing that, that, that we question this and then we question this and then we question this. By the, by the time we're done, we're off believing something that's totally different from the biblical gospel. So these are the four areas of discipline that Paul calls Timothy to. Discipline yourself to lead by example, to teach scripture, to minister in your gifting, and to watch yourself. If you do that, verse 16 says, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Now, here's what Paul is not saying. If you behave, Jesus will save you. That's not what he's saying. He is saying, though, if you live this disciplined life that's the result of a focus on godliness and Christ-likeness, if you do that, well, surely you're going to inherit salvation, and everyone that follows you will as well. You'll share the gospel effectively. You'll teach people to grow to become more like Jesus. You'll, you'll develop disciples that know how to pray. I mean, salvation will just follow you everywhere you go. People will give their lives to Christ and be transformed by what he does. That actually takes me back to verse 10, and this is what I want to close with. Verse 10 says this, For it is by this that we labor and strive, by this focus on godliness, because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Jesus is described in verse 10 as the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now, in this verse, that word men, this, you know, obviously this is an old, old text. It just means humanity. It doesn't just mean guys. It means humanity. Jesus is the savior of all humanity, mankind, men and women, all right? Not just men. But then it says, especially of believers. So how can Jesus be the savior of all humanity, but especially that of believers? Well, here's what Paul means by that. There's only one real savior for humanity. There's not one savior for this group and a different savior for that group and another savior for that group. There's only one real savior that's been provided for humanity and that's Jesus, okay? That's, clear, that's a clear biblical teaching. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is exclusively the savior of the world, not him and or him or, it's just Jesus. He's the savior of all mankind but then it says, especially that of believers. He is, he is personally the savior 
of all believers. So when, when it says he's the savior of all mankind, it's, it's saying he's the only opportunity, but yet that doesn't guarantee that all people will be saved. He's the savior of all people, but not all people will be saved because people reject Jesus. So for Jesus to be especially the savior of those who believe is to say that it is effective in their life, that they have put their faith in Jesus. Many of you know that in 2017, Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl, right? Some of you watched it right here in this room. That was a big day in the history of Philadelphia, right? Okay, February something, February 8th, I think, 2017. The Eagles, February 4th? Okay, well, it was in February of 2017, I know that. Eagles win the Super Bowl. They are the Super Bowl champions of the entire world. They're the only champs, right? There's no other Super Bowl champion. And because it's the NFL and we're American, our champions are considered world champions, even though there's no competition from the other countries, right? That's how we roll. So the Eagles were the only champions, right, Becky? Okay. Giants fan. Okay, the Eagles were the only champions. And you know, if you remember that night, Philly was crazy. We went out of the, outside the church. There were fireworks going off. People were banging pots and pans. I lived just a few blocks from Frankfurt and Cotman. I couldn't find parking. I had to sleep in the basement that night just to get away from the sound. It was crazy. You know, it wasn't like that in, you know, Pittsburgh that night. It wasn't like that in... New York or Boston or any other, Green Bay. The Eagles were the champs of the whole world, but especially the champs of Philadelphia, right? Jesus is the savior of the whole world. Some people are mad about that. Some people do not like that. Some people don't care. But there are people, what we call believers, who love that because they've put their faith in Jesus. He is objectively the savior of all mankind, but he is subjectively or personally our savior. So this is, I guess, an invitation that I want to give. Is Jesus especially your savior? Is he just the savior of all mankind, or is he your savior personally as well? I mean, have you actually put your faith in Jesus? To put your faith in Jesus to save you is to take your faith off of yourself to save you. And this word save, uh, the Savior, is, uh, it comes from the, it's the word sozo, and it means more than just spiritual Savior. It actually means that he delivers you from demons, he heals you from sickness, he saves you from emotional stress and turmoil, and he provides eternal life to you. That word salvation is way broader than we often use it. He saves you in every aspect of the word of being saved. When Peter was uh, sinking, when he walked on water and he was sinking, he said, Lord, sozo me, save me, which is the same word we use for salvation. Save my life, I'm about to drown. Not, he wasn't saying, Lord, I accept you into my heart as my personal Lord and your Savior before I die. He's saying, Jesus, right now, before I sink under this water, I need you to save me. And so salvation has obviously a permanent and eternal aspect to it, but it also has this immediate effect to it. Who are you trusting in to lead your life? Who's going to make ends meet? Who's going to keep you healthy? Who's going to lead your marriage? Who's going to manage your finances? Who is ultimately going to be responsible to stand before God and provide an account? You? Or is Jesus going to do those things? Is Jesus going to be your righteousness when you stand before God and say, I want to be judged based on Jesus, not my own good deeds or efforts. Judge me on Jesus. My good deeds, my religious behavior is like dirty face masks you know it's just it's spoiled it's imperfect it's impure 
I want you to judge me based on Jesus. And, and the way we do that today is we say, and Jesus, I want you to run my finances. Jesus, I want you to run my family. Jesus, I want you to teach me how to be a good employee, a good student, a good spouse, a good family member. Jesus, I'm putting my faith in you to lead and taking my faith off of myself to lead. So, Romans 10.9 says, if you put your faith in Jesus, you also ought to confess that. It should come out of your mouth. It's not, it's not just a private decision. There's always a public aspect. To the inner transformation, there's like a public demonstration. It comes through confession. It comes through baptism. It comes through transformation in your life, the way you treat people and interact with people. There's always got to be this outward evidence of the inner transformation. So I want to I invite you, if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, find an opportunity to confess that today, tomorrow, sometime soon. Just to say it, whether you post something on Facebook or say something to your spouse or say something to your, a family member, find an opportunity to confess your faith in Jesus. If you have not been following Jesus for a long time, and this is a new thing to you, it's really important that you confess that in some way, shape, or form as well. You, that you make a public declaration of your faith in Jesus. That happened all throughout the Bible. Everybody did it. They did it through baptism. They did it through confession. They did it through demonstration. But it was always a public thing. Private spirituality is not overflowing if it stays private. So I want to pray for you and uh, dismiss you and then see you next week. Jesus, thank you that you work from the inside out that you don't tell us to discipline ourselves so that we can be saved, but rather that you have saved us and the result of that is a disciplined life where we minister in our gifting, where we lead by example, where we teach your word and where we take a close look at our personal and private lives to make sure that they're full of integrity. I ask Jesus that you would save many today, that you would uh, help us to understand what it means to put our faith and our trust in you. I also ask Jesus that you would give us focus and vision. We don't want to just grind out the Christian life. We want it to be this natural overflow that comes from the inner transformation that you do in our hearts. And I pray that in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.